Holmes received the remaining portion as part of his brother's estate. It was this unexpected legacy, then, that made it possible for Holmes and me to spend long periods on the continent, in particular in Italy, where Holmes had become as well known as he was in England. Although he was often paid handsomely for his services by rich clients, he often charged nothing for his services, particularly if his client proved to be impoverished. It also made it possible for him to concentrate on cases in which the only interest was the intellectual one of finding the solution to a difficult problem, whether or not a crime had been committed. London, of course, and our quarters on Baker Street continued to be our home, but the sunny rooms on Via Crescencio in Rome continued to beckon to us. In time, we became as comfortable on the banks of the Tiber as on those of the Thames. The cases that follow contain a small sample of the many that Holmes pursued in Italy. I accompanied him in all, including a death in Venice, the one that made his early reputation in the limited circles of Italian criminology. This case, for reasons that should be obvious to the reader, concerns the death of one of the greatest figures of nineteenth-century Europe. Indeed, its publication even today, and after so many years, may be premature. Holmes, however, has insisted on its public appearance to quiet the growing rumours that have become part of the daily tabloids. My collection also includes an account of the death of Mycroft Holmes and his attempt to prevent the great conflagration that enveloped all of Europe. Had Mycroft lived just a few days longer, it would indeed be possible to argue that this conflict might have been avoided altogether. At any rate, the case provides convincing evidence that the war did not start nor have its causes in Eastern Europe, but in the cruel events that took place just before Holmes returned to England in 1894. Holmes has also permitted me, with the greatest reluctance, to write frankly, if not in detail, about his long relationship with Lady Jennifer Maxwell. In this, I must confess that I insisted over a number of years on some mention of his respect and affection for her. It was only in recent months that he acquiesced with a, All right, may the devil take you, and took peevishly to his violin. He has not returned to the subject since. The title of this volume, Between the Thames and the Tiber, was suggested to me by an old acquaintance, an American whom I got to know in London after my discharge from the Army Medical Corps in Afghanistan. A writer of great fame, he was kind enough to review the manuscript in its entirety before final submission to the publishers. The reader should note that the terms Thames and Tiber are not to be taken in any strict geographical sense, but rather as symbols of the two imperial powers, one of which is our own, the other, of course, being the Roman, that have formed and dominated the cultures of Europe, as well as many of those that lie far beyond what is now the known world. A final word with regard to myself. The young, provincial, and amusical doctor who accompanied Sherlock Holmes to Italy soon became an astute observer of the astonishing creativity of the human spirit, particularly in the city of Rome. These changes in personal habit and interest took place largely under Holmes's tutelage. When there was no problem in detection confronting us, 
I would frequent the Rome Opera almost on a daily basis. Holmes often accompanied me, explaining the intricacies of both music and text. It was Holmes who removed my tin ear, as he often put it, and permitted me to hear things that I had never heard before. My reading also changed, and I found myself engrossed in such difficult works as Berlioz's treatise on orchestration, edited by Richard Strauss. It was through this work that Holmes and I came to know Strauss quite well. I identified him fairly quickly as the man in the blue coat. I must interject a word here about Holmes's great nemesis, Professor James Moriarty. As time passed, Holmes became more and more of the view that Moriarty might still be alive, even after painstaking investigation of every credible report that he had seen in England and in France. His belief was based mostly on the evidence...